eight words in Greek, nine words in English, and just what our hearts need today. Eight words in Greek, nine words in English for your good days, your bad days, and your blah days. I'm talking about the last part of Colossians chapter 1, verse 2. Turn there with me in your Bibles. Last week, we started our new series in the book of Colossians. Today, we're just going to look at these nine Greek words, but we will not go this slow through Colossians. But these nine words in the last part of verse 2 are worth slowing down for and kind of doing that rubberneck car wreck thing. You know what I'm talking about? Like when you see a car wreck on the side of the road, you drive slowly past it and like you have to look, remember? You rubberneck. That's what we're going to do today. We're going to drive really slow past these nine Greek words in verse 2 and we're going to rubberneck this thing because these words are what we need every single day. Whether we're having a good day, a bad day, or just a blah day. Our big idea today comes from something Jerry Bridges said in his book, The Discipline of Grace. He said, your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. Your worst days are never so bad. You will never be so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good, never going so well, that you are somehow beyond the need of God's grace in your life. So you will never have a bad day. You will never be so bad that you are beyond God's grace. And you can never outrun grace. And you'll never have a really, really good day where you're kind of firing on all cylinders spiritually. We've all had those, right? That you don't need God's grace. You desperately need God's grace every single day. And who knew this better than the Apostle Paul? Which is why he leads with grace. So turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to look at the last half of verse 2. Hear the word of the Lord. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. This is vintage Paul. This is how he begins his letters. This is Paul's bread and butter, grace and peace. This is what it means to be in Christ, what we talked about last week, being in union with Christ. is experiencing God's grace and peace. It's the free favor and kindness of God given to sinners through his son Jesus. And so what do you do when you begin to rub God's favor into your pores? Will you experience peace when you realize that you are accepted, that you are welcome? That God's favor rests upon you and you can't lose it. And you rub that into your pores. You begin to experience peace and rest and relaxation and deep breaths and release and unclenched fists and lifted frowns. You might even smile. The idea of peace here is the same as the Hebrew concept of shalom. Shalom, the Hebrew word means peace, wellness, wholeness, harmony, That's what the Garden of Eden was like. God was thoroughly enjoyed and worshipped. Creation was enjoyed. All human relationships were pleasurable. All was well. There was harmony and wholeness. In fact, the Hebrew word for Eden is actually delight. It was the Garden of Delight. That's what we should call it. The Garden of 
delight. That changes it, doesn't it? But sin destroyed it all. Sin destroyed the delight of creation. Sin destroyed shalom. Neil Plantinga says this, God hates sin, not just because it violates his law, but more substantively, because it violates shalom, because it breaks the peace, because it interferes with the way things are supposed to be. In fact, that is why God has laws against a good deal of sin. God is enthusiastically for shalom and therefore against sin. Let's say that evil is any spoiling of shalom, whether physically by cancer, say, or morally, spiritually, or otherwise. So Adam's sin disrupted shalom. It disrupted peace in the garden of delight. So when Paul prays for peace here, Paul is actually praying for the Colossian church to experience shalom, wholeness, wellness, harmony. Paul will go on to remind the Colossians in chapter 1, verse 20, that Jesus has actually made peace by the blood of his cross. And then in chapter 3, verse 15, Paul will pray for God's peace, for God's shalom to rule their hearts, for God's shalom, his wholeness, wellness, harmony, to rule the church body. And one reason why the Colossians don't have peace in their hearts and aren't living in harmony as a church family is because they have been infiltrated by false teaching that said they had to follow certain rules in order to receive God's grace. It was causing division in the church body with people falling for these anti-gospel lies. So when Paul says grace to you and peace from God our Father at the beginning of the letter, as he prays it at the end in Colossians 4.18 when he says grace be with you, Paul is pointing the Colossian church to God's unmerited favor for people who clearly don't deserve it and who cannot earn it no matter how hard they try to just be a good person. Paul's actually praying that the Colossians experience the very heart of God the Father, which is kindness. This is the heart of God, kindness. Is that what you think of when you think of God? Because the first word that comes to mind when you think of God, is it kindness? It should be. For some people, the first thing they think of is lightning bolts, anger, wrath. But it's kindness, not wrath, not lightning bolts, but unmerited favor. Paul doesn't say lightning bolts to you from God our Father, does he? It's God's unmerited favor. It's a smile, a smile is the heart of God for sinners like us, if you can even imagine that. That's why we're allergic to grace, because we think when God interacts with a sinner, it should be lightning bolts. But it's a smile. It's favor. Paul is telling the Colossians that they, as bad as they are and as sinful as they are, they can have peace in their hearts because of God's grace. And that's the pattern. God's favor, His grace, leads to peace. God's favor, his grace flows down to people like us, sinners like us, and then we experience peace, that all is well between us and God. And then we actually begin to relax and we start enjoying God, if you can even imagine that. So it looks like this, God's grace comes to us in Jesus. And so we are at peace with God and then we begin to relax and really enjoy him. That's the Christian life right there. 
But notice that it's not get better, do more, try harder, and then God's grace comes, and then you get peace, and then you can finally relax and enjoy God. Listen, you will never, ever receive grace and peace by doing more and just trying hard to be better. Grace has to find us. We don't find grace. We're not looking for grace. Grace finds us spiritually blind and dead in sin. Grace pursues us. Grace chases us down because it comes from the heart of God the Father. Grace seeks the down and out. Grace crosses the tracks and goes into the shady parts of town to find us. Grace loves to love the unlovable. Grace actually seeks out the worst of the worst. Grace seeks out people like us who could never climb up or even stand in God's presence. That's what grace does. And grace doesn't have a leash either. It has no limits. When grace encounters a sinner, God doesn't yank on the, tra- the chain in order to uh, rein grace back in because grace cannot be reined in. God doesn't pull grace back and say, not so fast, don't go there. I don't affiliate with those kind of people. They live on the other side of the tracks in the shady part of town. No, grace runs wild because grace has no leash Grace seeks out sinners. Grace pursues God's enemies. Those who are ungrateful, unworthy, unlovable, undeserving, unqualified, and unwanted. Grace goes to the rebels and the misfits and the scoundrels and the ragamuffins and the porn stars and the serial killers and the suicide bombers. And the homeschool moms, and the goody two-shoes, and the Awana champions, and the pastors, and the Pharisees, and the churchgoers, and the Baptists. Grace is shocking, and grace is scandalous, but it's what makes the gospel good news. Grace doesn't whisper condemnation or shame or guilt Grace, the grace of God our Father, always whispers to us, you are loved, you are forgiven, you are adopted, you are safe, and you are clean. And so if you want peace in your life, if you want to be able to rest and relax in the Christian life, if you want to enjoy God, you cannot fetch peace from your sanctification or from how well you are doing or how good you are or how faithful you've been or how much fruit is in your life. You can't get peace from how good you've been or how faithful you've been. But this is often how we think, isn't it? We often get peace, we experience internal peace when we think we've been good. Well, I've been pretty good. I've been pretty faithful with my quiet times. So I'm getting peace from that. That's where we misunderstand grace. Jerry Bridges brings out this idea in his book, The Discipline of Grace. I recommend it to you if your Sunday school class or small group is looking for something to go through. It's a great book. He says this, Consider two radically different days in your own life. The first one is a good day spiritually for you. You get up promptly when your alarm goes off and you have a refreshing, profitable, quiet time as you read your Bible and pray. Your plans for the day generally fall into place And you somehow sense the presence of God is with you. To top it off, you unexpectedly have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone who is truly searching. As you talk with the person, you silently pray for the Holy Spirit to help you. 
and to also work in your friend's heart. The second day is just the opposite. You don't arise at the first ring of your alarm. Instead, you shut it off and go back to sleep. When you finally awaken, it's too late to have a quiet time. You hurriedly gulp down some breakfast and rush off to the day's activities. You feel guilty about oversleeping and missing your quiet time. And things just generally go wrong all day. You become more and more irritable as the day wears on. And you certainly don't sense God's presence in your life. That evening, however, you quite unexpectedly have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone who is really interested in receiving Christ as Savior. Would you enter those two witnessing opportunities with a different degree of confidence? Would you be less confident on the bad day than on the good day? Would you find it difficult to believe that God would bless you and use you in the midst of a rather bad spiritual day? Most of us would say that we feel more confident on day one to share the gospel. If we have a bad day, then we're inclined to not be confident sharing the gospel with someone. But that's a misunderstanding of grace. It's not about us. It's not about our spirituality at all. Okay? If God needed you to be really good in order the gospel to get out, guess what? The gospel ain't getting out. Because you're not good. And neither am I. God's standard is perfection. He's holy. So he says, be perfect, be without sin. That's none of us. We need grace on both the good days and the bad days. We're not less in need of grace if our day starts off with a quiet time. And we're not more in need of grace if we skip our quiet time. We're always in need of God's grace. And we can always share the gospel confidently, no matter how good or bad our day has been. You can have that most absolute rotten day where you lost your temper, maybe said a bad word or two, just a terribly rotten day, and someone could come up to you, and the conversation turns towards sharing the gospel with them, and you can be confident in that moment to share the gospel because it does not ride on you. It rides on the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. You can be just as confident to share Jesus on your worst days. In fact, you might be more confident because now you realize, yeah, Jesus really did come for sinners, and I am living proof of that. Remember, your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace, and your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. So you can't get peace and confidence from how good you've been or how faithful you've been. You don't get grace and peace from your behavior. You get grace and peace from Jesus' behavior, from his perfect life. You can only get true peace from the whisper of grace. That's how the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and mind. True peace flows from the free, unmerited favor of Christ. It flows from the whisper of grace. It flows from your heavenly Father, not how good your quiet time was. So here's what Paul is saying at the beginning and at the end of Colossians. He's saying, grace from God our Father be with y'all. No strings attached, no footnotes, no endnotes, no iTunes user agreement to agree to in order to get grace. No, prove you are not a bot by selecting all pictures with a crosswalk in order to get access to God. None of that. No stipulations. No strings attached. It's just the free grace of God for all. 
for all who would open the empty hands of faith and receive it. Forgiveness of sin, being declared righteous, justification by grace through faith in Christ alone, all received with the empty hands of faith, not works, not the empty hands of earning or the full hands of earning, like, here, I'm bringing all that I've done in order to earn this. You can't. It's a gift. But even better than that gift, even better than the forgiveness of sins, even better than being justified and being declared righteous by God, even better than all those things, get this, we are adopted. God is our Father. Can it get any better than being justified? Can it get any better than being declared righteous? Can it get any better than being forgiven that Jesus can't remember your sins? Can it get better than that? The answer is yes. Adoption into God's family, being his child is actually better. Having God as father is better. J.I. Packer opened my eyes to this truth years ago. In his book, Knowing God, Packer begins chapter 19 by asking a question. What is a Christian? The question could be answered in many ways. But the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. You sum up the whole of the New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole of the New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity... Find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well. In fact, Packer goes on to say, our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. Now, that may come as a surprise to you because we Reformed folks really value justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We value that, don't we? And we are right to do so. We are right to value and cherish justification. What is justification is the act whereby God legally declares us not guilty and credits to us the righteousness, the perfect life of his son Jesus. So we are right to make a big deal about that. But you may say, can it get better than that? Better than justification? Better than being declared righteous? And J.I. Packer says it can and it does. Why? Because we contrast justification with adoption. Again, to quote Packer, adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love, viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the father is greater. We have been adopted into God's family. And you have to know this. God only adopts the devil's kids because we were all born dead in sin. And God goes to the devil's orphanage and says, I'll take that one and that one and that one. 
We have been adopted into God's family. And now we call him Father because we are his children. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. It's one thing to receive grace and peace from God the judge, but it hits different when you receive grace and peace from God the Father. So the grace of adoption means you are free, Christian. You've left the orphanage. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. And God is not mad at you. He will never, ever be mad at you again because Jesus already took care of that at the cross. You sit and you live and you abide under his love and devotion forever, no matter what you do. If you never obeyed again, Jesus would still love you and cherish you. If you never pleased him or even had the desire to please him anymore, he would still love you because you were covered with the righteousness of Jesus. God sees you as blameless. God sees you as if you've never sinned and as if you have always obeyed. And nothing, nothing can change that. I mean, think about that. God sees you as if you have always obeyed. Isn't that amazing? Because you haven't always obeyed, and neither have I. And if you sin, he will forgive you always, because you are his child forever, because Jesus paid it all, and it is finished. And this message of grace that I'm preaching is maddening to religious people. And if you're a religious person right now, you may be like, I'm just going to send him an email. Okay? Religious people, uptight people, do not like the message of grace at all. They are severely allergic to grace because they want to earn it, because they think they're good enough. They look at other people and say, at least I'm not as bad as him. They want to earn their way. And so they are allergic, severely allergic to the message of grace. They would not like what Brennan Manning said. He said, my life is a witness to vulgar grace, a grace that amazes as it offends. A grace that pays the eager beaver who works all day long the same wages as the grinning drunk who shows up at 10 till 5. A grace that hikes up the robe and runs breakneck toward the prodigal reeking of sin and wraps him up and decides to throw a party. No ifs, ands, or buts. A grace that raises bloodshot eyes to a dying thief's request. Please remember me and assures him, you bet. A grace that is the pleasure of the Father, fleshed out in the carpenter Messiah, Jesus the Christ, who left his Father's side, not for heaven's sake, but for our sakes, yours and mine. This vulgar grace is indiscriminate compassion. It works without asking anything of us. It's not cheap. It's free. And as such, will always be a banana peel for the orthodox foot and a fairy tale for the grown-up sensibility. Grace is sufficient even though we huff and puff with all our might to try to find something or someone it cannot cover. Grace is enough. He is enough. Jesus is enough. That's grace. Pays the eager beaver who works all day long the same wage as the grinning drunk who shows up 10 minutes until closing time. It hugs and kisses the prodigal and doesn't shame him but instead throws him a party. 
This is why Paul starts his letter off with grace. It's why he ends with grace. And it's why the whole letter is stuffed full of grace about all the things that Jesus has done for us. Because Paul knows that it is impossible to exaggerate the gospel. Paul knows that it is impossible to talk too much about grace. Paul knows that hyperbole never applies to God's grace. And if for some reason you're tired of hearing the gospel, then that means you're in need of hearing it the most. If you think, I don't want to hear the gospel again, that means you need to hear the gospel. Because Paul knows our propensity to lose our awe and wonder of Jesus. Paul knows how easy it is for the things of God to just become too familiar to the people of God. Paul knows that we can all just get used to grace and not be awestruck by it anymore. So Paul leads with grace and peace because he wants to give the Colossians their awe back, their awe of Jesus. Paul wants them to keep hearing about grace because Paul knows we are allergic to grace. Paul knows that our default mode is to revert to religion where we do stuff for God in order to get his approval. Paul knows that our default mode is to think that everything is riding on us. He knows how tempting it is to get on the performance treadmill where we try to earn grace. Robert Capon said, I think good preachers should be like bad kids. That's a great sentence. (laughs) I think good preachers should be like bad kids. They ought to be naughty enough to tiptoe up on dozing congregations, steal their bottles of religion pills, and flush them all down the drain. The church, by and large, has drugged itself into thinking that proper human behavior is the key to its relationship with God. What preachers need to do is force it to go cold turkey with nothing but the word of the cross and then be brave enough to stick around while the congregation goes through the inevitable withdrawal symptoms. So Paul sent this graceful letter off to the Colossians so that he could flush their religion pills down the toilet. And make them go cold turkey with nothing but the word of the cross. Let me ask you, can you go cold turkey with nothing but the word of the cross? With nothing but Christ crucified. And that's all that matters. Nothing but grace. And that's what we want to do today. We don't want to hear just do a little bit more. Try harder. Work yourself to death. We want to hear grace. The whisper of grace from God our Father. But maybe you don't believe that grace is as good as it is. Maybe you're cynical, skeptical. Maybe you don't understand grace at all. I've shared this before, and I try to share it at least once a year. But here's how you can tell whether or not you understand grace or not. It's kind of like those old, you know, you might be a redneck jokes, if, remember? Like, you know, if you mow your lawn and find a car, you might be a redneck. Or if your lifelong dream is to own a fireworks stand, you might be a redneck. If you made change in the offering plate, you might be a redneck. These aren't going to be that funny, but it's kind of like that. You, you misunderstand grace if. If you live with a vague sense of God's disapproval, then you don't understand grace. If you think that God is always frowning at you, if you think he's a grumpy dad, always upset with you, always mad at you, always crossing his arms, just going, ah, then you don't understand grace. If you feel sheepish bringing your needs before him when you've just failed him, then you don't understand grace. So say you blew it and 
You went and did that sin that you repented of 10,000 times. 10,000 times you said, I'll never do it again. And you've done it again for the 10,000th time. And now you think, I can't go to him. Think you need to be in a timeout maybe? Maybe there's this probationary period where you wait for God to cool off before you can talk to him. Before you can come into his presence. If that's you, then you don't understand grace. If you feel you deserve an answer to prayer because of your hard work and sacrifice, then you don't understand grace. I mean, you get up and you pray for two hours every morning. And you read Leviticus in one sitting. And you like it. And you serve at church. And you hand out tracts at Disneyland on your vacation. You're not there to have fun. You're there to hand out tracts. And you do so much for God. And so now he owes you big time. If that's you then you don't understand grace. If you assume that you've sinned, up, sinned so many times that you've used up all your credit of forgiveness, then you don't understand grace. And so let's say you've sinned your sin, the one that you've confessed and repented of 10,000 times, and you've done it over and over and over, and you start thinking, there's no way that God can forgive me. I must have used up all of my grace credit by now. I'm going to get declined if I swipe. If that's you then you don't understand grace. If you feel more confident before God if you've been faithful with your quiet times and prayer and witnessing, then you don't understand grace. I mean, surely you deserve a speed pass to God, right? Because of your performance, because you've been so faithful, because you've been so good, because you haven't been like that person. And that this somehow gives you more confidence before God because of what you've done. If that's you, sorry, friend, but... You don't understand grace. If you can't honestly say that you see yourself as blameless in God's eyes, then you don't understand grace. And so you feel dirty and, and you feel clean, uh, unclean. You feel like when God looks at you, all he sees is this dirty, mangy, stinky person and not someone who is in Christ. And if that's you, then you don't understand grace. If you fear that the day may not go as well as expected because you missed your quiet time, then you don't understand grace. And so you do oversleep. You're running late. You don't have time to pray. You don't have time to read the word of God. And now you think your whole day is going to be ruined. You're going to get fired. You're going to wreck your car. Your house is going to burn down all because you didn't have your quiet time. If that's you, then you don't understand grace. If you assume that you can do something to make God love you more or less, then you don't understand grace. If you think you can do things that make God love you more, or if you think that you can mess up and do bad things and his love for you will somehow diminish, then you don't understand grace. Confession, there are many days when I don't understand grace, when I do all of these very things. I assume you feel that way too. The Colossians did, and the Colossians needed a crash course in grace again. They were being tempted to go back to rule-keeping, chapter 2, verse 16, probably being told by these false teachers that they had to keep the Mosaic law, follow some Jewish customs, and then they threw in a bunch of other weird stuff. So the Colossians needed to relearn that grace is a shocking declaration that God has done it all without any human help whatsoever. Grace is the astonishing announcement that God is not keeping scorecards on our performance anymore. Isn't that good news? 
Grace is the end of browbeating people into thinking that there is some standard that they must uphold if they want to be worthy of God's love. Grace is shocking. Grace is scandalous. But it's what makes the gospel good news. And in the end, grace is really just Jesus. If you're having an allergic reaction to grace right now, what you're hearing, it means you're allergic to Jesus because grace is Jesus. When Paul prays grace and peace to you, he's just praying that they experience Jesus, all that God is for them in his son. He's praying that they experience the gracious heart of Jesus. And grace is Jesus. And he's whispering this to you today. I love you. I forgive you. You are mine. No strings attached. So remember, your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. So you will never have a bad day, a bad week, or a bad month where you will be so bad that you're actually beyond the reach of God's grace. Like, too far out there. I can't reach him, and I don't want to. He's so bad. He'll never be there. Guilt-laden disciples are tempted to think that they have forfeited God's blessings because they haven't been good, because they haven't been obedient, because they haven't been disciplined, because they haven't been faithful. Listen, you can never outrun grace. You can never exhaust grace. You can do all the bad things that can be done in this world and you will never be disqualified from receiving the grace of God because grace is too persistent and grace is too stubborn. It's too stubborn to let you go out there into the far country and not come find you. And you'll never really have a really, really good day or a good week or a good month where you're firing on all cylinders spiritually, man. You're just like on top of the world. You'll never be at that place where you also don't desperately need God's grace. Pharisee-type disciples think they have earned God's blessings because they haven't been bad and because they have been obedient, because they have been disciplined, because they have been faithful. But no matter how good your day is going, no matter how spiritual you are, you still desperately need God's grace every single day, every single moment of every single day. And guess what? Grace is free. It's free. It just is. There's no hoops to jump through. It's a free gift. No strings attached, no hoops to jump through. You just receive it. You open the empty hands of faith and receive it. And then you begin to relax and enjoy God. Let me ask you, have you received God's grace? Have you received his favor and kindness in his son? Have you you turned from living for yourself? And have you come to Jesus and said, I need you. I'm lost. I'm blind. I'm dead in sin. Have you done that? Come to Jesus today. He will welcome you. Leave your bags of good works at the door. He doesn't need them. You just come empty-handed. You bring your sin. That's about all you can bring. You come with baggage of sin and say, this is what I have to offer. And Jesus says, that's what I want. And he will give you his perfect life. Have you received his grace today? That's what you were made for. To experience shalom, peace, wholeness, harmony, well-being. So no matter how good you've been and no matter how bad you've been, whatever it is that you have done, 
Hear the whisper of grace from your heavenly father today. He says, I love you. I forgive you. You are mine. No strings attached. You are loved. You are forgiven. You are adopted. You are safe. You are clean. Let's pray. Jesus, we come with all of our sin, which in our eyes is very repulsive. How much more is it in your eyes because you're holy? And yet, you invite us to come this way with all of our sin, our lust, our worry, our doubt, our anger, bitterness, everything, God. And to come to you and to say, take this and give me your life, give me your grace, give me your peace. Jesus, our sins are so many. We don't want to deny that. And so we come to you and say, forgive us, cleanse us, wash us. Help us to take this good news that we're experiencing right now to others and not worry about how good or bad we've been to just go tell them that you love them. So we thank you for all that you've done for us on the cross. We just say thank you. Amen.